good to be with you guys. Glass asked if I had a cheap flight up here, um, and I did. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, we're diving in, like Matthew said, we're finishing up this Sacred Gender series uh, with biblical femininity or biblical womanhood today. So you have a man up here telling you what it means to be a woman. It's going to go great. There's going to be no problems whatsoever <clears throat> at all. Uh, just curious, because I preached this message like two weeks ago in Cedar Rapids. How many of you cheated and went online and already listened to it? Okay, a few of you. All right, the rest. Now, if I say new things to anger you, uh, nothing, this message has already been given. I've already got a bunch of emails. Uh, so if you feel like you have a unique complaint, I'm sure Matthew would love to hear about it. Uh, but we're going to get into this. Uh, we're gonna, it's not just me up here saying, uh, we've said this before, we're people of the Bible, and we want to see what does God's Word have to say about this. And it does collide with culture, um, but we want to be people shaped by the Word and not, not our culture. So oh, the first place, we're going to be in a lot of different passages today. Uh, next week, we're starting a, a new series in the life of Christ, so we're looking forward to that. We're going to be in a lot of passages today, uh, but the first place we're going to be is Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. While you are, let's just kind of start talking. Uh, women have been uh, have had a history of being second class citizens in a variety of uh, all over the world and in different societies and and recently in our in our fairly recent history there's been a fight for equality a fight for uh, fairness, a fight to vote, a fight to own property, a fight for uh, rights, which has been a, a good thing. But the, at times, the fight to be equal to men can seem like a fight to be like a man. And there's an attitude of anything a man can do, a woman should, could, can do. And it's like, whether that's true or not, I don't even know if that's the right question that we should be asking. Um, like, is the goal for a woman to be like a man? And sometimes the fight to, uh, for uh, Equality can be the fight for sameness, just to be the same. But we're not the same. We're, we're different. And when we uh, do away with unique distinctions or ignore unique distinctions between men and women, we're left with questions like, well, what does it mean to be a woman? And that is an actual question that our culture and our society is wrestling with. It's interesting, even in uh, Congress hearings, when they're interviewing the new person, they'll ask, can you define a woman? And there's been a difficulty to do that. Um, this is a struggle in our society. What does it mean to be a woman? And you see a collision happening in our society right now between feminism, which is this uh, movement to empower women in society, and transgenderism, which kind of even blurs the lines of what it means to be a woman. Um, so on one hand, you have this like uh, crushing expectation to be everything. Like, you can do it all. You can be the CEO and the, the great mom and the great wife, and you can do everything, and don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. But you can't do everything. Like, nobody can. Nobody can do it all. Um, but on the other hand, anyone can be a woman who identifies as a woman. You're like, well, what does it mean to identify as a woman? Like, I'll wear a dress, put on some makeup, um, with the doctor's help, get uh, different body parts, it's like, but if you just reduce uh, what it means to be a woman down to clothing and body parts, then you just objectify women as sex objects. Listen, there is more to your femininity than your figure. What is it? Like, like if a female has a double mastectomy, she's no less of a woman. If a female can't have a baby, she's no less of a woman. But if what it means to be a woman is more than your figure and more than just body parts, what is it? 
What, what does it mean? And we said when we started this series off that um, equality is a biblical truth, that both men and women are made in the image of God, um, that we have equal value, dignity, and worth. But to minimize distinctions between men and women is not biblical, nor is it helpful. And you see the kind of the, the frustration and confusion in our society is trying to answer these questions. So here's, here's the premise that we started this kind of two-week series off with. We said we believe that men and women were created differently on purpose. Like, that's kind of the foundation in which we can build upon. Like, if you agree with that statement, um, we, we can build upon that. You still may get offended or upset with things we say later, but, but if you don't agree with that statement, that we were created um, uh, differently on purpose, then you're just going to get really upset with the rest of this message. But that's like the foundation or starting point for us. We believe that we were created differently on purpose. That everyone in here has a maker that God made you and he created you and he created us differently. And our, our differences in design of like bone structure and muscle math, mass and nature and, and able to uh, birth a child and feed a child and just different things between men and women. Like that's done on purpose. Like God didn't make Adam and Eve and then look back and be like, wait, one's not like the other. It's like, no, I did that. Like that's something I did on purpose. So we believe that we were created differently on purpose, and I would add, by a good God. Like God has a good design, a good plan, and he did this on purpose, and it's something beautiful. But what we want to look at this morning is what was the purpose behind God creating women? Uh, or you can put it this way, what does it mean to be a woman biblically and not just biologically? What does it mean to be a woman? Because if you're just politically conservative, you might just be, well, it's an adult female. Well, what about biblically? Like what does it mean to be a woman Biblically, why? What, what was the intention that God had in mind when he created women? And we're going to uh, give you a statement on biblical womanhood that I think kind of uniquely expresses a, a call for women in the, in the scriptures. And then I want to go and kind of uh, unpack different phrases in that statement and show the support biblically. Like we're going to go into the Bible and where do we see this at? Okay, so here's the statement. Biblical womanhood is embracing the inclination to help men lead in godliness, other women live in godliness, while modeling godliness. All right? Biblical woman is embracing the inclination to help men lead in godliness, other women live in godliness, while modeling godliness. Now, anytime you start talking about roles, guard goes up. Because who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? Uh, my mom said I could be anything I want to do. I can do anything I want. We kind of get this offense of like, I can, you know, I can fly. You can't fly, all right? But we have this attitude of like, nobody can tell me what to do. And sometimes the temptation for preachers when we talk about issues like this is to try to make it less offensive. Like, well, in their culture, it was like this, and in the Greek, and if you only read every fifth word, then it's going to sound a lot better. And it's just like, try to do, how, how do I just make this less offensive, right? I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to try to do that. In fact, I'll shoot it straight with you. It's super offensive. Like, from our lenses, from the vantage point that we look at, it, some of the things that the Bible says, we just got to be like, wow, that's in there? He said that? Like, like from, from our vantage point of being kind of enlightened, modern, autonomous, you know, kind of self-made people, the things in the scripture when it addresses gender can be super offensive. But here's the question. What if the problem is not a design problem, but a lens problem? 
that the problem is not the design that God has for men and women, but the problem is the lens at which we look at it. From sinful, selfish, you know, power-hungry people that we trip over God's design, but it's not, it's not a design problem. I mean, what if the design is actually a beautiful thing that God has done on purpose? And that's what we want to try to better understand. I think one of the tension points um, that we have in this is we look to find value and fulfillment and identity in our roles and what we do. But listen to me. You don't find fulfillment in roles. You find service in roles. You find fulfillment and value and identity in Christ. And we seek to give our lives fully and surrender to Jesus Christ. One of the things that you realize is your gender is not even about you. We were both men and women made in the image of God. And there are ways that men uniquely image God. And there are ways that women uniquely image God. But the point is not to live out your dreams. The point is to live out God's design. And here's the good news. God's design is better than your dreams. Like what he has in mind is better than what you have in mind. And the whole reason we kind of took two weeks to say, like, let's dive into this a little bit more because I think there's so much confusion in our world. We've got to say, what's the Bible saying towards us? So that's what we want to better understand. You guys ready to go? It's like that was just the introduction. Three of you are ready to go. Fifty of you are glaring at me like I shot your dog. Let's just do this. Okay. First off, inclination to help. Biblical woman is embracing an inclination to help. Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 22. Let me read it. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, so there is some... James Brown theology happening in Genesis chapter 2. That you, you didn't come right out and say that. But it is a man's world. Like God made Adam. He commissioned Adam to work the ground, to cultivate it, to keep it. And like this is a man's world up until this point. But what's the next line in the James? I don't know if we have too many James Brown fans. It's a man's world, but it would be nothing without a woman or a girl. So he's looking at Adam. He's like, this isn't good for you to be alone. Like I have given you a garden and a paradise and a land. I've commissioned you to work it and keep it, but something's missing. Like this is not good. And he makes Adam a helper. Now the clear intention of created woman was to make a helper. However, like, I just want to like, let's just talk. We're friends. Okay. Cause we hear that word helper and our guard goes up. Right? I don't know if we like that in our society because it's like, are you talking about like a second-class citizen? Like, what does this mean to be a helper? And there can be um, a reaction against that. However, to the original audience, this would be a very dignifying narrative. Because if you, you get, like, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, wandering in the wilderness, coming out of the slavery in Egyptian. And he's saying, listen, our, our history says women aren't property. They, they, they should not be mistreated. They're this beautiful gift from God meant to be honored, to be there for your help. So don't neglect it. 
So to the original audience, this is a very dignifying narrative. But from our standpoint, we can be like, helper, like, what do you mean? I don't, know if, I don't know if I like that. And there's different ways that we can view what it means to be a helper. Like you can be like a maid or a butler, like the help. Or you can be a hero that somebody that comes in and rescues and saves the day. Like which one is it? Uh, like Rudy, my youngest daughter, if she's home and a bookshelf falls on top of her and she can't get out. And I come over and I lift the bookshelf up and I pull her out. I'm the helper, right? I came and provided help. She could not do that on her own. And I came and I helped. But she's an each, so I would say, stop your crying, dust yourself off. We've got yard work to do, right? And if she goes out in the yard work and I say, hey, here's, here's the things we need to do. I need you to help me. Now she's my helper. See, there's two different ways to look at helper. Which way is it talking about here? God is often referred to as a helper. He's the helper of Israel. Right? Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? Comes from where? The Lord. So what kind of help is happening in this narrative? God is not our helper as in our assistant. Like he doesn't assist us. The way that God is our helper is we are helpless in our sin, and he comes and rescues us. That's the way he is our helper. However, when Christ came, when God put on flesh and came, he came not to what? Be served, but to serve. So in one sense, Jesus is the hero and the servant. What about Eve? Well, in a way, both. Because God looked at Adam and says, it's not good for you to be alone. Like you are incapable of fulfilling the commission and the commands that I've given you by yourself. You need Eve. You need a helper to come and do what you cannot do on your own. But also, God commissioned Adam and gave him responsibility to do it and said, here's somebody to help you do it. There's a little bit of both. And what the text says is that Eve was a suitable helper. What does that mean to be a suitable helper? It's in contrast to the animals. Because if you remember the narrative that we just read, if he's trying to find a helper for Adam, what does he do first before he creates Eve? He parades all the animals in front of him. Like, oh, that won't do, that won't do, that won't do. Then he makes Eve. And Eve is this suitable helper for Adam. Suitable in the ways that the animals were not. And it's beyond just procreation. There's a companionship that's here. Because it's like, Adam, you need a helper. And more than just for gardening. Because you can train a horse. Like if you just need something to haul things and heavy things. Like you can train a horse. And you can tell a horse to go and to turn and to stop. But a horse is never going to stop on his own. Turn around to Adam and be like, I think it would be better if we did it this way. Like he's not going to get that level of kind of companionship and camaraderie that's going to happen in Eve. This special helpmate. So it's not... Adam is the superior genius and he gets this dumb trainee. That's not the narrative at all. Like I, I said this before. Marcy is smarter than I am. Nobody's taking notes. Everybody's like, wow, he admitted that, right? I'll go out on a limb. Sharon is probably a lot smarter than Matthew, okay? <laughs> like this isn't a kind of an inferiority thing. This is about design and imaging God in unique ways and how we relate to each other. And Eve came along and supplied what was missing. And it's more complimentary to be the help than the one getting helped. But listen, being demeaning, being undermining, 
being manipulative, being controlling, it's not helpful. Just taking over, just let me do it, not helpful. Or on the other side, just stepping aside and getting walked on and never saying anything, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. God commissioned Eve, help. This is why I made you and put you like, you are to provide help. He needs your help, like you have to help. Now, the reason we say embrace the inclination to help is because this is not something that is forced upon you, but rather a disposition you willingly take. Like the attitude is, I am here to help. How, how, how do I help? How can I help? But my attitude is, I am here to help. Now, what we want to get into moving forward is I think there are two unique, unique areas in which women are called in Scripture to help and one unique way in which women are called to help. And the first one is help men lead in godliness. Now, when we started this series, we looked at masculinity. If you missed that, uh, go back and listen to it. But we looked at the call to men to provide godly leadership. And here, uh, Eve is created as a helper. And here's the caveat fit for him. So let me just go back and point it out. It's in verse 18. Now it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper. What? Fit for him. All right. We're just asking for some participation, especially from the angry ones. And then you go down to verse 20. It says, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. For Adam, there was not a helper. What? Fit for him. So he's like, this isn't just a helper, like a hired hand. This is a unique helper. And she is to help him. To help him, like she is made for him. And what you see in this narrative is Adam was formed from the ground and tasked with working it. And Eve was formed from Adam and tasked with helping him. Like there was intentionality and purpose in the design. And specifically, helping the task of glorifying God by carrying out his commands. Like that was what they were commissioned to do. Cultivate the ground, work it, fill the earth, have dominion over it, multiply. Like this is what I've commanded you to do. Now help in that. Now this is important because this is what it's saying. Listen, it's not Eve help Adam do what he wants to do. No, no, no. It's Eve help Adam do what I want him to do. You see the difference? That's a very important difference. It's not Eve, you need to help him do whatever he wants to do. No, I've put you here because he needs help in doing what I want him to do. What I've commanded him to do. There is a directive towards godliness. Now, what's clear throughout Scripture is that women are huge influencers. Like, before you got paid for it. Um, they're huge influencers. We see in Scripture this pattern of women either helping men do good things or helping men do bad things. And I wish we had more time to kind of point this out. But let me just kind of do a flyover of some examples of this. Rahab hid the spies. Deborah strengthened the resolve of uh, Barak. Ruth convinced Boaz to allow her to come under his protection. Abigail dealt kindly with David while pleading for the forgiveness of her foolish husband. Esther risked her life and intervened to direct her husband to the true threat in his kingdom. And on the other side, Eve led Adam to disobey. Jezebel led Ahab into greater sin. Delilah tricked Samson. Herodias' daughter convinced Herod to behead John the Baptist. So for good or bad, by design, there is a powerful influence that women have and it is to help men do godly things, not ungodly things. It's to help men do godly things, not ungodly things. Which means helping is not just helping. Helping is stewardship. There, there's a responsibility and a weightiness to direct towards godly matters, not ungodly matters. It's an influential position. Ladies, understand the power of influence that you have. Your attitude, your support, your demeanor will be 
huge in shaping your marriage, your home, your kids, your workplace, whatever you find yourself. And your undermining and your gossip and your controlling and your manipulating will be huge in destroying your marriage, your family, your kids, or your workplace. It, the, it is powerful. In fact, there's several passages in Proverbs that talk about the power uh, that a wife has in her home uh, in a negative sense. Like one passage in Proverbs said uh, that it is better to live in the corner of the roof than in the house with a quarrelsome wife. The word of God's instruction to a man living with a quarrelsome wife is here's what you should do. I'd just move to the roof. I'd move to the roof and I'd get as close to the edge as possible. That's not, like that's the power of influence. He's saying you find yourself in a very difficult situation because there's power. Listen, uh, uh, Eve was made from Adam. A woman was made from man from, from the rib, from the side, under the arm for protection, but close to the heart for intimacy. And that's also a very powerful place of influence to be. Influence is stewardship. Use it for godliness. So if you're married in this room, what kind of influence are you having on your husband? Let's go to the other one. Uh, An inclination to help other women live in godliness. So flip over to uh, Titus chapter 2. We'll try to pick up the pace here. Titus chapter 2. All right, I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. You're probably familiar with these verses before, but here's what he says. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, probably never the verse of the day on Caleb or, or your, whatever the Christian radio station is. I don't know. But that's in the Bible. And Paul's saying this. Okay, we've got to deal with this. What, what, what is he saying? And sometimes there's this attitude among women in church world of like, I don't want to talk about domestic things. Like, let's get deep. Let's get into the Bible. Let's study the Word. Let's do Bible studies, which is great. Amen. I'm all for that. Take VST. Women know the Word. Study the Bible. Yes and amen. However, that's just not what this text is about. Like, that's not what's getting pushed here. This is fine women who can, um, who can teach you practical godliness. Not somebody who can break down soteriology for you, but find somebody who's going to help you be a godly woman. Like, that's the directive that's happening here. Now, sometimes when this passage is read, it comes with this disclaimer that this passage is not prohibiting women from working outside the home. And I would agree with that. I don't think that's Paul's intent here. That's not what he's saying. This is not a prohibition for, uh, that women can't work. But when you study the Bible, you can't just say what it doesn't say. You have to say what it does say. And it's saying something. What, what is he saying? And what he's saying here is that women have a special ministry in the home and in the family. That there's a special calling and a special ministry by design for women in the home and to their family. I, I was doing some study and uh, my wife pointed out that uh, women have the ability uh, to hold a child and adjust their body temperature to the heat or cool the child. Uh, but men can only heat things up. I'm like, yeah, that's right, baby. That's what we do. Right? <laughs> but it's like there's this design. Like there, it is... It is a special ministry to the home and the family. Now, if that sounds degrading, you're like, well, you're supposed to be barefoot and pregnant. I didn't say that, okay? I didn't say that. But if, if, it, if me saying to you that women have a special calling and a special ministry uh, to the home and the family, if, that, if you find that degrading, maybe it's because there's been a downplaying of the family in our society. 
Like, real important work is outside the home. Like, that's what you get paid for. That's what you get known for. That's, what you, that's why you have accomplishments. And that's what gets prized and treasured in our society. So even a, a mom who works outside the home and you ask, well, what do you do? The first thing she'll say is, well, I'm an engineer or I'm a mom or, I, or I'm a teacher or I'm a nurse. Uh, and then I happen to have three kids. They don't say, I'm raising three kids and I happen to be a teacher. Like, there's a different emphasis on that. Or if there is a mom who doesn't work outside the home, here, here's what tends to happen. If they say, what do you do? They'll say, well, I'm just a mom. And can we please stop putting just in front of motherhood? Please. Raising kids that know and love Jesus is one of the most world-changing things you could do. Don't let society tell you what is important and valuable for you to do with your time. Let the Word of God tell you that. And it is precious, it's important. I can go on for there, but let me, let me get back to the, the main point of this text here. What is the main instruction in those verses that we read? Here's the main instruction. Older women teach younger women how to be godly women. Older women teach younger women how to be godly women. Now I'll let you decide what older women is, okay? We'll just throw that out there. You can decide for yourself. But that's the command. Older women teach younger women how to be godly women. So there's not just an inclination to help men lead in godliness, but also to help other women live in godliness. And there is a, there is a competition among women that just needs to stop, especially in the household of God. Like who has the nicest home and who has the flattest stomach and who has the best kids and who has the best and you can post it on Instagram and kind of project their perfect life. And there's this competition and you can get wrecked under your own idealism of perfectionism. Like it just like and girls can be nasty, right? I mean, I got a boy and I got two girls, and you just watch them grow up and how they deal with conflict. And normally it's like you know Billy punched Timmy on the playground, and the next day they're best friends. But girls, it's like you form a coup, and you're going to find the weakness, and you're going to exploit it, and you're going to separate them from the herd, and you're going to make the rest of their middle school career miserable, right? And there's just this like competition that can be nasty. Yeah, there's a recent study that came out that said women f- spend far more time checking each other out than the opposite sex. I read that to my wife. I was like, did you know that? And she's like, duh. (laughs) But women spend far more time checking each other out than the opposite sex because there's this comparison and competition going on. You've got to be honest with yourself. Like, why are you spending so much time in the gym? Why are you so concerned about your diet? Why are you spending so much time getting yourself ready in the morning? Don't say that it's because it's for your husband. He doesn't care that much. You're trying to look better than Nancy in accounting. Like there's this competition going on. There's this kind of, you know, competitive nature. And it's not, it's not biblical for the household of God. You say, and other women, older women need to teach younger women how to be godly women. We need to be for each other. So let me offer a challenge in this one. Older women, again, you can decide who that is, but older women, get in the game. Get in the game. Like, you have things to offer. Don't, don't think, like, I served my time. Like, no, you raise kids. Get in the game. Help somebody else. Pour out your wisdom. Like, initiate. Make relationships with women younger than you and invest in their godliness. But it's on you to be proactive in doing that. Older women, get in the game. Younger women, stop idolizing the wrong things. Stop idolizing the wrong things. All these, like, influencers that you follow, 
They're often young, beautiful, and wealthy. And who you follow shows what you treasure. And what our society treasures is the wealth, beauty, youth. That's what we're after. That's what we want to be. Those who are our influencers are. But listen to me. If you're young, your life coach, your role model should not be some 28-year-old on Instagram that's still trying to figure out how to raise a toddler who wears $100 yoga pants that's giving you recipes for kale chips. Like, that is not who you should be trained. Like, no, I'm serious. Like, you need to find better role models. Find somebody who has been married for decades and their husband adores them. Find someone who has raised kids that love Jesus. Find somebody who has lines on their face that says they've spent years laughing and crying. Like, you need to have different role models. The older women teach younger women how to be godly women. It's what we're called to but there's a way in which we're supposed to conduct ourselves in that. And that's why I put it the last, while modeling godliness. Now, both men and women are to model godliness. That's not unique to women. But you can't ignore, when Scripture addresses women, there is a specific type of character godly women are called to. Like, even in our passage in Titus, how does it start off? Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves so much wine. It goes right to demeanor to character, to attitude. There's a type of feminine godliness that is to be expressed and is a powerful weapon in the influence that God has designed women to have. It's in the character. In fact, what's the most famous description of a godly woman in Scripture you could think of? Pop quiz. Proverbs 31. Yeah, like seems like every women's ministry is Proverbs 31 ministry. Uh, spoiler alert was written to men. Uh, Proverbs 31 was a mother trying to instruct her young uh, son on what to look for in a woman. But you look at this uh, woman in Proverbs 31. She's trustworthy. She's hardworking. She's strong. She's not a worrier. She's not a worrier. She's not a worrier. Uh, She's wise. She's kind and caring. She's compassionate. She contributes to the provisions of her home. Her kids love her. And you can read that and you can think, this is a superwoman. Like, I, I don't, I mean, this is some like idealistic picture of a, like, this isn't a real thing. And one thing to keep in mind when you read Proverbs 31, which is helpful, is all these descriptions of this Proverbs 31 woman is past tense. Which means, when you look back at her life, she exemplified these things in seasons. It's not that she was all of these things all the time, all at once. But when you look back, there were seasons when she did this. And seasons when she did Like, this describes her life. Uh, but if the defining trait of her, which is the title of the section, is that she fears the Lord. She fears the Lord. In fact, uh, it, it, her fear of the Lord is put in contrast uh, to beauty. This is verse 30 in chapter 31. It says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Like, charm is deceitful. Beauty is, is vain. Like, it, it, it doesn't last. <laughs> Not that kind of beauty. But a woman who fears the Lord, oh, she is to be, she is to be praised. Now, Oftentimes, girls are told, hey, if he is only into your looks, move on, which I would say, amen. But since this wasn't written directly to girls, but a mother instructing her son, let me say this. Guys, if she has to dress in such a way to get your attention and finds her value in her looks, run. Run. 
Because if the Lord is not enough for her, you won't be either, and she will crush you with her insecurities. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, let's be honest. There is a reason that Scripture often addresses women in appearance. Because you do, do you remember Adam's response when he first saw Eve? He broke into poetry. It was a moving moment. He's pretty pumped. There, there is an attraction by design. And in a fallen world, men can objectify women in pursuit of their own sexual lust. And women can objectify themselves in pursuit of attention, value, and power. Because you know, you can wear that and you get would treat different if you wore the other thing. You would get more attention if you wore that versus that, the other thing in your closet. Listen, modeling godliness is being called out of all that. It's being above it. The Proverbs 31.25, I love this passage, says this, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Do you know what that means? Do you, know, you know what she wears? You know what she adores herself? Her character. And do you know how she views getting old and her body breaking down and not looking, you know, 21 anymore? She laughs. She laughs. It's like, like, you know that clothing store, Forever 21? Like, I want to, like, open up a store right next to that, wherever it is, say, not 21 anymore. Like, just I think that would go well. But this, this description of this woman is like she clothes herself with her character. And this competition to be the thinnest and the, the best looking and the whatever. It's like this and getting old and having your body breaking down. It's like she just laughs at that. It's like that's not where she finds her value. That's not, that doesn't give her her worth. Like let me, let me give you a, a few passages just so you feel like I'm not cherry picking a few. Like this is a consistent theme in scripture uh, that comes up. This is First Timothy chapter 2. Paul says this, Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with, that, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, you kind of get, you get two positives and a negative um, that, that Paul lays out here for this. One, first, women are to dress with modesty and self-control. What he's saying is that there is a refrain from sensuality in your clothing. Like when you get dressed, the goal should not be to be sexy. Like if you have clothing that accentuates or draws attention to parts of your body that would be inappropriate for someone to compliment you on, don't wear it. Like that, he's saying, this is like you should avoid sensuality in your dress. Second, it says not to dress with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothing. What he's saying is don't flaunt your wealth in your wardrobe. Uh, don't communicate your social standing in your wardrobe. And then the third is the positive, dress with good works. He says, you know what people should notice about you? Not your figure, not your income, your character. Your godliness, your dignity. Here, here's another. Just so you're like, well, that's Paul. Well, here's Peter. Let's go to First Peter chapter 3. He says this. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. So same kind of argument here saying don't let your clothing or your body kind of define your value or your dignity. Use your character to do that. And he goes on. He says this. 
with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, how attractive is that in this fight to stay young, which that's not what this is about, but he's saying there is a beauty that is imperishable. It doesn't go away. Like there's a forever 21 that's not physical but spiritual. He's saying there is an imperishable beauty here, and it's a gentle and quiet spirit. Or you think of those words like serene or tranquil, like a lake at, in the morning when it's just calm. There's something beautiful about just the peace that a woman has who knows who she is. And it goes on, it says this, which in God's sight is very precious. Now we're getting into the meat of the matter. What, what is key to a woman like this is she cares most about what God thinks. She cares most about pleasing God. There's a high concern for bringing pleasure to God. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, if we had time, it would be good to go into that. Because there's only like one incidence where she calls him that. And it's kind of in passing. But he says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, this is important. So he says, holy women. This is how the holy women used to adorn themselves. Uh, Holy is to be set apart. Ladies, this is what it comes down to. Are you willing to be different? Are you willing to be diff- Are you willing to kind of get off that kind of that race that's happening? Well, if she wears that and I don't wear that, she may get the promotion and I may not get the promotion, or she may get the attention and I won't get the attention. Are you willing like, yeah, I don't play that game anymore? I don't do that. Like I'm not in that competition. I'm set apart from that. I'm okay being different. That's what it means. These holy women they 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 function differently. They thought differently. They live differently. And then it says. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So he's not talking about some weak, passive, full of worry type of women. He's talking about women who aren't afraid of anything and anything that's frightening. Like things that other people be like, that's kind of scary. These women are like, I'm not afraid of that. I'm a dad of two daughters. This is what I want for them. I want them like, you don't have to dress for that. You don't have to like get somebody's approval. You don't have to live for men. Live to please God. And you don't have to be afraid of being passed over or, or whatever. Like you hope in God. Like you're not afraid of anything. You're not afraid of getting ignored. You're not afraid of getting passed over. You're not afraid of anything. And you're like, how are they going to accomplish that? How, how do these women do this? Like what, what's the key? And the key back in verse 5 is for this is how the holy women who what? Hoped in God. How can you not be afraid of anything? Oh, because you hope in God. Why is it that you dress differently? Oh, because you hope in God. Like this is what's directing your life. And and in church, wouldn't it be awesome if this was the reputation of the women at Veritas? Like you guys are for each other. You're for each other's godliness. You let go of this kind of comparison, competition. you, You hope in God. You're not afraid of anything. You just have this peace about you because you know who you are and you know where your value comes from. And getting old, oh, you just laugh at that. And what you wear every day is your dignity and your strength. Do you know the type of influence that would have? And and church, let me just say this. Who best displayed a commitment to good works? Who is not wrapped up in appearance? who had no beauty that we should desire him, as Isaiah put it, was a servant with a submissive attitude, 
was gentle and lowly in spirit, wasn't afraid of anything, and sought most to please God the Father, Jesus. Listen, it is a high calling to be a woman. And to be a godly woman is a big deal. And it is our hope that is modeled and lived out in this church. And when you celebrate communion and you go and you see symbols that represent Christ's body, it's pierced and broken, his blood that was shed, be reminded of the value that women are called to and the sacrifice modeled by our Savior. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we come across scriptures that just directly collide with so much the world has to tell us. And we wonder if we can trust you, if you really know what's best, if you have our best in mind, if you love us, especially when we wrestle with maybe not the challenge that some of your teachings bring. I pray that we look no further than the cross to know that we are loved by you and to the extent that we are loved by you and to know that we can trust you in all that you tell us and direct us and know that your design for us is greater than the dreams we could have for ourselves. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.